0: Lord, we do thank you. We thank you, Father, with all that we are, with all that you've given us, with every fiber of our being, Father. We thank you. We know, Father, that if we had a thousand lifetimes, we couldn't thank you enough. And Father, during this season of Thanksgiving and celebration and of Advent, the reminder of your coming and when you came and wrapped yourself in flesh for the purpose of later dying for us. Father, we can do nothing less than thank you. Father, today, we want you to be glorified on it and praise. Father, we want to be changed from the inside so that we're not the same, Father, that we were when we came. We want to leave differently, Father. Changed. We want to be transformed. We want to some other area of our life, Heavenly Father, to be opened up for you, Father, so that you can step in and take control. Because, Father, left to our own devices, Father, we fail. But that your power, with your strength, and in your might, submitting to your will, Father, we can do nothing but worship. So, Father, today we ask that you will speak to us through your preached word. Speak to us, Father. So that, Father, we love you with our lives. And all of God's people said, Amen.
1: Good morning. <clears throat> for those of you who don't know, my name is Arnie Atkinson. I am the uh, Regional Director for the Southeastern U.S. for World Vision's domestic work. And my family and I have been tending here at Rock Point for the last year and a half or so. It's a privilege to get to Stand up here and share with you. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, I I shared uh, during one of the later services, which is longer. Matthew and I are sharing some of these. um, That task was to preach from Revelation 4 through 18 in about 35 minutes. Today, I have 20 minutes to go through Revelation 20. I'm not sure which one of those is a more difficult task. It's very fitting that we uh, look at Revelation chapter 20. We'll be there uh, if you've got your scriptures, you can begin to turn to Revelation chapter 20. It's very fitting that we do it today on the first Sunday of Advent. Advent, as Alan shared earlier, means coming. It's it's this idea of looking forward to the coming. There was, even before Christ, as Alan shared, this, this hope among the people of God that there would come. And even among people outside the people of God, you see the Magi who came from the east to worship Jesus when he was born. All of the world has this sense in which some salvation needs to come from God. It's, as Don Richardson, the great missionary and teacher, used to say, it's eternity written on the hearts of God's people. They were looking forward. There was an expectation, maybe even a conviction, of what we look forward to today. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20. Since I didn't preach this early service a couple of weeks ago, I should probably redo some of my disclaimers. Uh, there are, as Ron shared in the beginning uh, of this chapter, this sermon series on Revelation, there are five or six major views of the way you can look at the content of the book of Revelation. And just as a quick refresher, some of those there, there's historical premillennialism, uh, there is dispensational premillennialism, both those being the idea that at some point in the future there's going to be a 1,000-year, literal 1,000-year reign where uh, the people of God partner with Jesus to reign on the world. Satan is bound in the abyss, and in some way there is this millennial kingdom in which the principles of the kingdom of God are, are lived out. There is postmillennialism. Uh premillennialism teaches that Jesus comes back before the thousand years and establishes that reign. post says Jesus comes back at the end of that thousand years, and he comes back to a near-perfect world because we've been living in this thousand-year uh, reign of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Amillennialism is another viewpoint. Amillennialism says that the thousand years is not a literal thousand-year period time, but actually refers to the kingdom of heaven existing in the people of God as it does today, but yet not fully existing uh, in all of creation, the way we pray that God's will would be done on heaven as it is on earth. So I come at this just to declare my biases. I typically come at this from an amillennial point of view. I see the book of Revelation as written primarily for those century Christians, early second century Christians who were struggling in the world in which they found themselves. Christianity had begun uh, to to be seen as separate from Judaism, but as it left the Judaism roots of their history and began to be sort of persecuted by the Jews, they also weren't accepted by the culture at large for the first 300 years. The Romans saw Christians as atheists. I mean, if you've only got one God, that's kind of atheistic. And so there was this constant temptation for the early Christians, particularly around the phrase, Caesar is Lord. And in my understanding, I believe that one of the most prime ways that early Christians were tempted to take on the mark of the beast was they were paraded before a public tribunal and stood up and made to profess, Caesar is Lord. And for these early Christians, that was something they weren't willing to do. Jesus was Lord, and Caesar was not. And because these early Christians saw uh, that Caesar was not a god himself, he was not Lord, that all of the previous Caesars had not become gods, and that there wasn't this pantheon of gods in the universe, the Romans typically perceived the Christians as atheists. They heard stories and rumors about these agape feasts where the early Christians would celebrate and they would take the the blood and the body of their, their, their leader, Jesus, and they got tagged with the idea of being cannibals and being pagans. Oddly enough, in our culture, where we tend to think of those outside the church with those kinds of things. This is the way these early Christians were perceived in their culture. They were a marginalized people who didn't have status in their society. And I think so much of Revelation speaks to a marginalized people, a people who are on the edge, on the fringe, people who are being persecuted, people who are being challenged. It is interesting uh, that we find ourselves looking at this from the standpoint of those marginalized people. I'm going to jump in to Revelation chapter 20. We've got just a brief period of time here today to look at this. So uh, I'm going to try and not open a bunch of can of worms about times and future dates. And I won't mention Harold Camping or Kirk Cameron or anybody that relates to so much the future. I may open up another can of worms or two, but I want to really look at what Romans chapter 20 says and how it can be applied for us today. So let's take a look. Romans chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pits and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, bound him up for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. There is no way in the world I can unpack everything in this text in just a short period of time. So I'm going to pick one thing out of this first section and talk just briefly about the importance, I even say in my notes, the regalness of martyrs in the eyes of God. That down throughout history, there have been those who have been challenged, they've been stood before their friends, maybe their family, certainly before government tribunals, before corporations, stood in public and asked to choose between Jesus Jesus. And something else. They've been stood up and said, say that Caesar is Lord. I think we tend to look at things from a very Western point of view, really even from a, a very U.S. American uh, point of view. And we, we tend to think of our culture as a place where martyrdom doesn't happen. People don't stand, ask you to stand up and say, we're going to, you know, cut, it's 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 over for you if you don't recant your faith. And yet, the reality is, in the 20th century, more Christians died for their faith in the world than the previous 19 centuries combined. In places where Christianity has become not the norm, where the Word of God, though, has taken hold in the hearts of people. Literally millions have been persecuted and even murdered for their faith. And for God, these martyrs have a special place. We see here that those who were beheaded are part of those who rule, part of those who reign. There is a sense of kingliness to those who are committed to Christ enough that they were willing to stand and die for him. It's the call that Jesus actually has on all of us. He bids that every man come and pick up his cross and follow me. We look at that and crosses for us are things to decorate our sanctuary with or wear on a chain around our neck. But for Jesus and his followers, a cross was an instrument of death. It's almost as if he said, hey, take up your electric chair, put it on your back and come follow me. Jesus calls that we become martyrs even today. Maybe not physical, But certainly every culture has a way in which they challenge us with the Caesar is Lord temptation. You can think about our own culture. How does our own culture challenge you to say anything but Jesus is Lord? What is that temptation for us today? It may not involve our physical death, but it usually involves some subtle way in which the world wants to creep in And say, God doesn't have to rule your life. You don't have to follow the teachings of Jesus. Who can be Lord? The ultimate lie that the snake challenged Eve and Adam with. You can be like God. You can make your own choices. Your own decisions. God calls us in those situations to stand and to say, Jesus is Lord. Though all else fails me, I will choose to follow Christ. Let's pick it up again in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Here's the second thing I would say. Not only would I say from this text that those who take a stand and who are willing to even die for their faith are kings and priests in the kingdom of God. The second thing I would say is that evil is real, and it exists in the world, and it shouldn't surprise us. It will exist until the very time Jesus comes again. If you see this text as pointing to this future kingdom, even in that future thousand-year kingdom, there will come a time at the end of that where Satan will be released, the accuser will be released, the deceiver will be released, and he will deceive multitudes of people, and they will all come together in one joint rebellion against God. And can I say that from my own understanding, the world is in a joint rebellion against God. My wife and I watch Criminal Minds on TV. One of those uh, shows was about justice. And I love Criminal Minds because it seems to juxtapose the good and evil um, in really unusual situations. And I know that There are times where we'll be watching it and my wife will say, oh, I can't believe people would do that, talking about the evil that the show portrays in a serial killer. Honestly, I'm wondering where the good comes from sometimes. I mean, we all still bear the image of God, but the reality is evil rules much of the day in our culture. We live in this unique time in history where the kingdom of God has come among us, Jesus initiated the kingdom in his followers, and we who are the church have become the body of Christ. We've become filled with the Holy Spirit, and God's power fills us so that we become witnesses of his grace and his love and his power and his judgment in the world. But the reality is that exists within the people of God. It doesn't yet flow out through all of creation. And there's going to come a time where all of creation will gather in this mass rebellion against God, And God himself will come down and he will put an end to it. Until then, he challenges you and I to become his partners in overcoming evil with good. Evil exists. Rebellion exists. Our role today is to overcome evil with good. I don't have, again, a lot of time to unpack it all, but... Uh, up on the screen is going to be Revelation chapter 12, and if you have your scriptures, you can turn over Revelation chapter 12, and starting in verse 9, I'm going to read through just some ways that you and I can overcome evil by doing good. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it starts by saying, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, Give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You and I are challenged by God to become his partners in overcoming evil with good. At that time where God comes and literally destroys evil, and in Acts what we see in Revelation twenty-one, that I'm sure Ron will begin to preach on. Very soon, that time where there is no more tears, where evil is wiped off uh, the face of creation, where we enter fully into the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and we experience the presence of God as if it was the lights in this room that's around us. It's there with us all the time. Until that time, we let our light shine in such a way that men and women see it and bring glory to God. And we, with our deeds of honor and love and service even to our enemy, overcome evil with good. The third thing, and the third thing is probably the most challenging of all of this passage. Back to Revelation 20, verse 17. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's human nature for us to compare, right? We compare my job to yours, my salary to yours. We compare my house to yours. compare my kids to yours. Uh, We compare my car to yours, we compare my sports team to yours. I'm a Steelers fan by the way, better than the Cowboys. Um, So, we compare. I mean, it's just human nature, right? We compare stuff and we say, oh, there's winners and losers and we compare. And if you compare yourself and you come out the winner for a short period of time you're happy and if you compare and you come out the loser then you don't feel so great about yourself. What we need to see here in this last judgment is that we don't measure up To what we're compared to. And in not measuring up. We find salvation. There's this scene. You picture it. Where the books are opened up. And it's this picture of the books. Of the deeds of every human being. Who's ever lived. Now I can't imagine how long this is going to take. I've got to think in some way time. Doesn't exist the way it does now. Because there's been billions of people. Living and I'm not sure I want to listen to all of those things. Get read out of those books. But there's this. Incredible judgment. And these books are opened up. And everything you and I have ever done are written in those books. And when we get to the end of the review, the comparison will say, nothing in those books makes us righteous. Nothing in those books makes us holy. It's not even about the weakest link. Right? We want to compare our weakest link to something. Oh, I've never murdered anybody. I've never cheated on my spouse. I've never, I've never killed anybody. We want to compare our weakest link to other people's weakest link and say, I think I can measure up on this. You know what the scriptures teach? The scriptures teach that even our strongest link, our own righteousness, when that book gets opened and the things that are read out of that book that are great and good things, I served the poor, I loved my neighbor, I took care of widows and orphans in their need, I packed hundreds of thousands of meals, I sent them to a hungry people in Haiti, I went on a mission trip and served them. All of those best things in that book, God says, are like filthy rags compared to my holiness. It's not our weakest link that gets us in trouble, it's our strongest. It's the places where we feel righteous about ourselves that will one day cause us to face judgment. We all know we need to be deserved, that we deserve judgment for our sin. The challenging thing is to understand we deserve judgment. For even our best, because it's not holy. The way to holiness is to say, God, I have no standing other than the blood of Jesus. The hymn had it right. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. We will stand before judgment, and if our names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life, we will be judged. No matter how good the other books say that we were. All of this for me comes together in the theme of hope. Even judgment comes together in this idea of hope. Advent is about hope. We hope for the future. We hope for the return of Christ we hope for Him to come quickly. We hope for God to speak to us in our world. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says this, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. That part of the verse always confused me. Bring her into the wilderness. God, God begins to woo us and and leads us but not leads us into an existing vineyard he leads us into a wilderness and then he says i bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her and there i will give her vineyards and make the valley of trouble into a door of hope i will make the valley of achor which means trouble into a door of hope our god is about taking the troubles of life that tempt you that that make you want to reject Jesus as Lord, that make me want to say I'm going to turn and trust in my own security, I'm going to trust in my money, I'm going to trust in my job, I'm going to trust in something else. But it's God who can turn the valley of trouble into a door of hope. We live in a bumper sticker world where people equate hope with a successories poster or a Hallmark card. When the reality is a God who can overcome evil, a God who can take the death of a saint because of his or her faith and turn it into a kingly thing. The God who even judges righteously is a God in which we can hope and trust. Only God can take things like martyrdom, rebellion, and judgment and redeem them into things of hope. Where is your hope today? Is it in this great God? I pray that it is. Let me pray for us and we'll be concluded. Thank you, Lord, for this time to be together and to open the Scriptures, a challenging Scripture, and hopefully be able to find things that the Spirit illuminates to us and says to us, that we can put our faith and our trust and our hope in You, that our hope is built on nothing less than the righteousness You brought for us on the cross. May we, during this Advent season, see that hope, that blessed hope, as what motivates us, as what guides us, but ultimately what we trust in with nothing else, that we trust in that for our salvation. We trust in You, wholly in You, and what You've done for us for our salvation. Regardless of what the future brings, regardless of what the present has for us now in the way of trouble, may we look and trust You only. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.